Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Asher, and here is what you need to know. The race to, to contain the coronavirus, tens of millions of people on lockdown, Businesses and theme parks close their doors to stop the spread. Plus, it's Democrats' last day to plead their case to the Senate to vote to remove President Trump from office. And a finale in the Swiss Alps, how the 50th World Economic Forum will stand out from the rest. It is Friday, and this is First Move. Welcome to First Move, coming to you today from New York and also the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Julia Chatterley will join us live from Davos in just a few minutes. The coronavirus has become a major concern for dignitaries there. The health emergency has rattled global markets throughout this week as well. That said, if you look at your screen, though, we've got a very positive tone to stocks this Friday. Futures are pointing to a higher Wall Street open with the Nasdaq set to begin today's sessions at record highs. The markets open in half an hour from now. Uh, In New York, European markets are rallying over 1%. New data shows the German economy on a firmer footing during the first few weeks of this year so far. Chinese markets were closed for the Lunar New Year holiday, but shares in Japan and Hong Kong rose slightly. Stocks are higher today, but Asia's health emergency could weigh on investor sentiment for weeks to come. S&P researchers say that Chinese GDP could take more than a 1% hit if consumers pull back spending some 10%. The coronavirus could also affect the bottom lines of major U.S. multinationals. McDonald's, for example, is already suspending operations in five Chinese cities, and Disney is shutting down its Shanghai theme park as a precaution. Asia's health crisis remains our top driver this Friday. In China, 30 million people in 10 cities are banned from traveling as authorities try to contain the coronavirus. The country has confirmed 26 deaths and almost 900 cases. Major cities are cancelling Lunar New Year events as well. Beijing and Shanghai are on the highest alert for a public health emergency. In Wuhan, officials acknowledge that hospitals there are struggling to cope. Uh, David Culver is in Beijing. Paul Hancock joins us live now from Seoul. So, David, I want to start with you, we all know this virus is spreading very quickly. Every single day I wake up and I see the death toll continues to rise. When you look at a city like Wuhan, do they have the capacity, just in terms of healthcare, to really handle this? Looking at social media, which seems to be our greatest indicator of what's actually going on within the lockdown zone, Zane. It seems that they are not as prepared for a situation like this. I mean, this is unprecedented what they've been doing to try to contain it. You talk about 10 plus cities, at least 30 million people. That number could go up. And it's not only restrictions going out of those cities, it's restrictions within those cities. So public transportation to get from one place to another also shut down. So people who have been trying to get to hospitals have complained that they've been unable to do so because normally they rely on public transport. So Wuhan officials have responded to this, and they acknowledge that some people have been turned away from the hospitals. There's just been an influx of of patients and concern and people going and asking to be tested, and some people going with fevers being turned away. Wuhan officials say that they have acknowledged it and that they have asked that that not happen again. They plan to alleviate that situation, and they plan to provide transportation for those folks. Now, some of these images that I'm about to show you here give a really detailed ideas to what we're seeing within the lockdown zone, if you will. And we should tell you, we have not independently verified these, but we've had CNN producers going through them, looking at the dialects, and they seem to be genuine. I want to start with this one, which shows some makeshift offices outside of a hospital, tents being used to help with this overflow. That's what it appears to be in this video. Now, another one shows a woman who looks to be a healthcare worker. She's walking along a line of patients who look 
to be trying to get tested for the coronavirus. She's shouting and uh, she's saying to get in line, to keep quiet so that they can hear her instructions. She's giving them procedures. And then she says, don't be nervous. It's tough not to be nervous in a situation like this. And lastly, a video that shows a patient's perspective in all of this. It's from the patient's bed and looking out at that person's medical team, all covered from head to toe in hazmat suits. Not necessarily reassuring, but you don't blame the medical team who obviously are trying to protect themselves from any potential exposure. As far as what the government is doing, they have said that they will put a billion, a million rather, RMB, so about 144 million U.S. dollars, into this effort, this containment effort. They haven't specified what exactly that would look like, Zane, but we do know one aspect of that will potentially be a new hospital that state media has said will be built in less than a week's time. Six days is what they're saying. And we've seen some video come out from state media that appears to show bulldozers and front end loaders, several of them sprawled out across a piece of property in Wuhan, preparing to make way for this construction. But six days is the time they're giving to build this thing. Right, so they're trying desperately, whatever way they can, to contain this virus. But no doubt it's certainly a tall order. Paula Hancock, if I could just bring you in. How effective do you think airport screenings and quarantines at airports will be in preventing this virus uh, from spreading? Well, we've certainly heard some experts saying that that they have little effectiveness when it comes to uh, actually trying to, to pinpoint this virus and to try and prevent uh, passengers potentially with this virus from entering the country. Now, we know there have been two cases here in South Korea. We understand from uh, from the Korean CDC that that they were picked up at the airport uh, when there were uh, the, uh, the the health screeners uh, at the gate. So, so clearly that was two, that were two cases that that were successful. Uh, so certainly it's just one of a number of measures uh, that, uh, that airports around the world are taking at this point. Here in South Korea, we also know uh, officials saying that, that, that they are told when there are particular passengers or individuals that, that have potentially been to these affected areas, they then meet them at the gate, they take the temperature there, try and preventing them uh, from, from mingling with the general passengers. A similar situation in London, we understand, at Heathrow Airport, there's a separate uh, arrivals area where planes from the affected areas would come through. So it's a real effort by many countries to try and segregate those uh, individuals and those planes from the affected areas from the general uh, populace. Now, we do know that the number of uh, confirmed cases outside of mainland China is rising. Early this morning in, in Asia, uh, Asia time, 14 people were confirmed to be uh, infected with the coronavirus. And now, at this point, we have the latest figure of 22, 11 p.m. here uh, in Seoul. One extra here in Seoul today, an extra one in Japan, a couple of extra uh, confirmed just in the past hour or so in Taiwan. So certainly there is a concern that these numbers are rising. Paula Hancock's life for us there, David Culver. Both of you, thank you so much. And worries over the spread of coronavirus reaching the picturesque Swiss town of Davos. Julia Chatley is joining us live now. So, Julia, uh, this year's World Economic Forum was supposed to be and in theory is about climate change and sustainability. But there's no doubt that the coronavirus in Asia has cast a massive shadow over the agenda. We've debated them all, Zane. Thank you so much. The final day here, of course, as you mentioned, uh, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, we've talked about the economy, sustainability, climate change. But to your point, absolutely, the last couple of days, business leaders, politicians, people from around the world very much focused on China's response here and their handling of this outbreak. And Richard Quest managed to speak to the CEO of China's largest travel agency. So, again, the response here, very important. The CEO telling him that the authorities in China have improved their response. Listen to this. Compared to SARS, I think Chinese government have invested a tremendous amount of the money in the system. So now they can show the world and the health organization about the disease, about the impacted scope. We'll talk more about this uh, from Davos later on in the show. But I do want to bring it back to the big theme here, which was climate change and the reaction. No doubt, big energy companies well and truly front and centre here. We're looking for what their response ultimately is going to be. Take a look at oil prices, though, and what we've seen over this week. They've been falling. 
John Defterius uh, had an exclusive interview with the CEO of Saudi Aramco, too. Perfect timing in light of everything going on. This, of course, the world's largest oil exporter. John asked him about whether in light of everything that's going on right now, the geopolitical tensions in particular in the region, is the market too complacent here? Listen in. If you compare it to in the, with the past, any small events like this would have taken the prices to a new high, hike and it would have lasted for a longer period of time. For the time being, apparently the market is assuming that there is ample supply, adequate supply that is sufficient to meet the market's requirements and demand uh, by uh, different sources, especially uh, the unconventional. Well, in fact, the shale production is expected to grow 1.2, 1.3 million barrels a day in 2020, but a much smaller gain in 2021. Are we about the end of that shale boom, do you think? I think uh, the shale, uh, I would say, oil revolutionized the oil industry in the U.S. There is no doubt. They did a great job. They reached almost as high as 1.6 million barrels in a year. And then we are seeing a slowdown. Our expectation is that in 2020 is going to be uh, as low, depending on which analysis you look at, as low as 400 and as high as uh, 800,000 barrels uh, per day of additional. It is definitely with time it is uh, going to slow down. Uh, there is a tightness in terms of financial uh, capacity um, and as such it will limit uh, the amount of shale uh, coming to the market. From a security standpoint, President Trump talked about having NATO uh, present in the Middle East to police the Strait of Hormuz, even perhaps protect infrastructure for security of supplies around the world. Is that a good idea that the burden doesn't just rest with the producers or the United States at this stage? There is almost 20 million barrels that comes out from uh, the Gulf uh, region and uh, the importance of ensuring uh, the safety and the security of that uh, supply is the responsibility of the region definitely but the whole world. Because so you like the idea of perhaps NATO having a role here you'd feel a bit more secure with the broader alliance. Uh, the energy security is uh, has an importance for the whole global world and uh, whatever happened in Saudi Arabia or in the Gulf will have serious implication on the rest of the world in terms of security of supply. And that is important. It is a responsibility, a shared responsibility that needs to be taken seriously. And John Defteris joins us now. J.D., this was a phenomenal panel. And I'll tweet out a link to it after mm. the show because I want people to watch this. Your face in response to his predictions for shale <laughs> output. I was like, OK, we're going there. We'll talk about policing the Straits of Hormuz. But what's happened? Why the conservative views now oh, on amazing. the and shale It's all players? changed in the last four weeks, yes. by the way. The estimates for the year were 1.2, 1.3 million barrels a day of expansion, a similar number in 2019. But now the message from Wall Street is you have to make money. Oh. We don't need more production. And we're at a very interesting inflection point because we had 200 bankruptcies over the last three years uh, with a burden of $100 billion of debt. So the major IOCs are coming in. Occidental paid a premium to go in. Chevron, ExxonMobil, BP, Total of France are all in there. They don't have to explore. They know it's there, and they want to squeeze some more efficiency out of it. So this is that turning point on shale. But, geez, we've added 9 million barrels a day over a decade, uh, Julia. It's about time for it to level off. And the major Gulf producers are much lower cost, so they're just kind of trying to sit mm. back. Interesting that the price is dropping, though, as we come into Davos, because there's no security threat to that. I just find it extraordinary that we're just not factoring in risk right now. They think there's plenty of oil from the United States, and the stuff is still coming out of the Gulf, despite all that scare we had four weeks ago. I know. I mean, if you look at the, the newspaper headlines, we were heading somewhere towards World War Three mm. potentially. And mm. I know from your perspective in the Middle East, it felt incredibly tense at that moment. I love the conversation about the responsibility, though. Mm. We all rely on this energy. The whole world is impacted. Who polices the Strait of Hormuz here? Uh, well, uh, Amin Nasser didn't want to get into the politics. He'll leave that to NATO, right? But he obviously didn't shoot it down, because if it's a wider coalition to police the Strait, uh, so much the better. They had a huge square uh, scare because of the Abkhaz attack on their facilities. They had the pumping station last year, pipelines being hit, tankers uh, south of the Strait of Hormuz. So clearly they'd like to have a shield here. 
The narrative, when I talked to sources here in, in background in Davos, though, was that there was a bold move by President Trump to take out uh, Soleimani, the general from Iran, right. and that has now pushed Iran into a box. Now, do they strike the Gulf allies, like the UAE, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, or not? That's a huge question, and that's why I'm surprised that we see the price dropping at this stage. Most believe that the United States did the right move. It put the Iranians on the back foot. The jetliner, uh, the Ukrainian jetliner is knocked down. Uh, also makes them very, very nervous to try to do anything else. Yeah, but we're still watching it all very sure. closely, to your point about complacency. You're going to be back to talk about Big Oil's response to a Greta Thunberg as yes. well. That's going to be a fascinating one. But for thanks for now, yeah, JD, thanks. thank you. See you in a bit. Zane, back to you. Julia. Thank you so much. So these are the stories making headlines around the world. The impeachment trial of Donald Trump is at the end of its first week today, is the final day of opening arguments for the Democrats. They're expected to move their focus to the second article, article of impeachment, and that is obstruction of Congress. Lauren Fox joins us live now. So, Lauren, up until this point, it's been all about uh, abuse of power. Just walk us through what Congressman Adam Schiff, who's also chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, had to say during his closing remarks. Well, essentially, he gave an impassioned speech last night, really multiple times repeating the same refrain that Congress needs to remember to do what is right. And I will tell you that for those in the room, it might have felt a little different than the previous arguments that he had made. Remember, this has been 16 hours in counting from Democrats. You can expect them to go another nearly eight hours today in their closing day of arguments. But Republicans have their own challenge right now, Zane, and that's the fact that this is wall-to-wall -wall Democratic coverage. Essentially, what people back home are seeing when they tune into any network, including ours, is the fact that they are just seeing Democrats making this argument against the president, abusing power and obstructing Congress in the case of today's arguments. And that's been a problem for Republicans. In fact, yesterday, Republican leaders told lawmakers that they need to make better use of those dinner breaks, those bathroom breaks. They need to go find a camera and make a case for the president, in part, because there's just no room right now for them. Now, we all know that this is going to shift tomorrow when the president's defense team begins making their case. But it's a Saturday. Not as many people may be tuning in. So that's in part why Republicans are really encouraging their members yesterday and today to make an effort to go and find and talk to the press. And I'll tell you up here, the press restrictions have gotten a lot more difficult to handle in part because they have us behind ropes. We can't walk and talk with members like we normally would. That was all put in by Republican leadership. So it's a little bit ironic that it seems to be backfiring now on their strategy to publicly defend the president, who we know is watching from the Oval Office. Zane? Isn't that interesting? Uh, Lauren Fox, live for us there. Thank you so much. Hundreds of thousands of people marched through Baghdad for what's being called a million-man march. The anti-U.S. rally was called by Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr to protest the American military presence in Iraq. It follows a U.S. strike that killed an Iranian uh, general in Baghdad. This is First Move. Coming up in Davos, there's deep concern about the impact of the coronavirus. We are live there with the CEO of Hong Kong's rail operator, MTR Corporation. And knowing who to trust, the CEO of IBM tells us why it should be them. Welcome back to the World Economic Forum, live from Davos, Switzerland, as we've been discussing the spread, the outbreak of the coronavirus in China and their response, certainly forming a significant part of the debate over the last couple of days. Let me just bring you up to speed with the latest that we know. So far, 26 people have died. 900 cases have been confirmed in China. New international cases have been reported daily. China now resorting to a travel ban on tens of millions of individuals to try and contain the spread. Global rail operator MTR, meanwhile, has suspended sales of high-speed tickets to Wuhan 
MTR Corporation runs public transport in Hong Kong and mass transit lines in mainland cities, including Beijing and Shenzhen. And I'm pleased to say Jacob Cam, the CEO of MTR Corporation, joins me now. So fantastic to have you on the show. Hello, Julia. Let's just talk about the company's response at this stage. What preparations and, and what um, restrictions have you put in place so far to try and contain the spread? Right. The Hong Kong government has raised the alert level. Uh, so in, according to that, we have implemented our contingency plans. Now, we have learned our lessons from the SARS epidemic uh, uh, crisis. So now we have put in place uh, various uh, uh, measures, including at the port. Uh, the port Health has put in uh, temperature, uh, body temperature measurement, uh, as well as uh, health decoration. Um, and in addition to that, we have actually enhanced the cleaning of our premises, our trains, and also raised the uh, uh, hygiene requirements for our own staff. Because all these have to be done together in order to uh, reduce the risk to our passengers as well as to our staff. Um, the uh, high-speed rail uh, uh, tickets to Wuhan has been uh, suspended. This is in cooperation with the uh, mainland authorities, right. uh, which is trying, of course, uh, try to contain uh, the spread of the virus. And no sense yet at this stage when you'll be able to re-establish those extreme caution, I guess, is what's being operated at this moment. Mm -hmm. In fact, at this stage of, the, um, of, of, uh, of a health uh, hazard like this, it's probably better to be cautious uh, than uh, to relax. Uh, we will, of course, continue to monitor the situation. But so far, you're, you're confident that travel on the rest of the trains, people are safe? Yes. OK. It follows what you've described, of course, and it's just one more challenge as, as <laughs> perhaps the biggest challenge that you've faced over the last 40 years. I mean, mm. you've been front and centre with the protests in, in Hong Kong. Mm. It's been incredibly damaging. Yes, it has been uh, probably the most challenging seven months in the 40 years history of Hong Kong. Um, um, I'm thankful that our staff have performed their duties uh, well and professionally. Um, we uh, have managed to keep Hong Kong running, to keep Hong Kong moving. Um, our, uh, our objective is to provide a safe, sustainable, uh, integrated uh, railway service to our customers. Um, also, uh, we hope to drive uh, our performance through innovation. So even in the last seven months, we have been able uh, uh, to, to move forward a little. Uh, we have opened a new fully automatic uh, unmanned uh, operations line in Sydney, and we have opened a new line in Hangzhou, and we have extended our service in uh, London uh, on the Elizabeth line. I mean, we saw a huge drop in tourism in December. Obviously, this is a separate event now with the coronavirus, but what was January like? Had you seen a bit of a pickup, or are people still quite cautious here? Um, in fact, the, uh, the overall patronage has gone down during the last uh, seven months, mm. uh, mainly because of the social unrest and also a significant drop in uh, tourist numbers. Um, we have seen stabilisation of the situation uh, um, in, in the last few weeks and patronage has been stabilising. But of course, uh, we will have to wait until the citizens are more confident to travel other than their essential travel in order for the patronage to come back to normal. You mentioned the future of transport, technology, the exciting things that you're doing. Does China lead in this or is perhaps the um, optimism about what can be done in terms of the future of transport a little ahead of the technology at this stage, she says? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, well, China, of course, is, uh, is always keen on taking the technology forward. They have done a lot in the high-speed rail uh, area, but they have also worked on the other associated technologies uh, uh, with railway as well as with customer service. We, uh, in Hong Kong, we have the advantage of uh, learning from all around the world. We don't yes. have the monopoly of good ideas, but we are able to learn from many different cities, uh, many different railway operators around the world, and we are able to implement some of the good ideas in both our service in Hong Kong as well as elsewhere. i tell you what, I've travelled around China and I thought it was absolutely phenomenal, quite frankly, so uh, <laughs> you get my vote. The CEO of MTR there, great to speak to you. Thank you so much Thank for you joining very much. us. All right, guys, the market open is next. We are counting down. Stay with us. We're back in a few moments. Plenty more to come from the show and from us here in Davos at the World Economic Forum. You're with First Move and we're back in two.
That is the Olympic softball team ringing the opening bell. Uh, it's Friday, the end of the week, end of a week of trading here on Wall Street. I'm Zane Asher. You are watching First Move. As expected, let's take a look. We have got a higher open across the board. The Dow is already up 100 points. Some better than expected earnings from corporate heavyweights are helping the market move. The Nasdaq is hitting fresh record highs. The Dow is on track for its first positive close this week. Let's look at European stocks as well. European stocks are also solidly higher amid signs that Eurozone business confidence is picking up in the new year. A closely watched German economic index rose to a five-month high. Time now for a check of our global movers. Take a look here. Shares of Dow Component American Express are on the rise after posting a fourth quarter earnings and revenue beat. Intel shares are rallying. The chipmaker giant is also reporting better than expected results. It's raising its full year outlook and it's seen strong chip demand going forward. We're also watching shares of both McDonald's and Disney. Both Dow Components are being forced to take emergency actions in China. All right. And shares of airlines and gambling firms have been hit hard by virus fears. Claire Sebastian joins us live now. So, Claire, just just walk us through, just given all of the fears and all the action that companies like McDonald's and Disney are taking, just walk us through how this might affect their, their bottom line, given the rapid spread of this virus in the region. Well, Zane, it's really hard to know that right now. This is still obviously a very fluid situation, very difficult uh, for markets and for, for people in the C-suite of these companies to price in. But you see them acting out of an abundance of caution. McDonald's, as you say, suspending operations uh, in five cities in China. They, by the way, are in the middle of a big expansion in China, almost doubling the number of stores between 2017 and uh, 2022. So that is worth bearing in mind there. Disney as well. They're not even in Wuhan or, or any of the affected cities. They're in Shanghai uh, and they are closed closing down their, their Disneyland theme park and various other bits uh, of the resort, they say, because uh, this is in response, response to the prevention and control of the disease uh, outbreak and in order to ensure the health and safety of our guests and cast. Obviously, this being an area where a lot of people will congregate. But Wuhan, don't forget, is also, to an extent, China's motor city. International car makers, the likes of Renault, Peugeot and Honda, all have operations there as part of a joint venture uh, with a Chinese counterpart. They, perhaps mercifully, are already closed for the Chinese New Year, but Renault has told us that they are monitoring the situation and it remains to be seen what will happen when that planned closure comes to its end, whether they will remain closed uh, or otherwise. A lot of them rely uh, on, on their Chinese operations for a significant part of their revenue. In the case of Honda, that was 11%. So these are all factors that we continue to watch. It is still very difficult to predict what will happen here, but a lot of international companies that as in are affected. And just in terms of airlines more specifically, obviously you have a lot of flights that have been cancelled right now. How are the likes of Delta and United handling this? Yeah, this is, again, uh, an international problem. The way to think about it is we have the direct impact from the closure of, uh, of the Wuhan airport. We can look at some of the, uh, the stocks that are affected there. China Eastern and China Southern uh, are perhaps the most exposed. They are now down double digits on the week. Cathay Pacific also, uh, its, uh, its subsidiary Cathay Dragon operates flights there. They have uh, suspended those and are refunding uh, customers. Delta also through a, through a co-chair with China Eastern operates flights to Wuhan. They are also offering refunds, as are United. Uh, so this is something. That, that is hitting the airlines particularly hard. Uh, but the big variable here, first of all, this is the Chinese Lunar New Year. So this is a, a really busy time. So the timing couldn't be worse for the travel community. Uh, but also the variable is that this isn't just about direct impact. This is about broader sentiment. We don't yet know how long this will last, how far it will spread and how it will impact how the traveling public views this region, whether people are going to hold off uh, on travel there and for how long. That is, again, something uh, that will affect these airlines and, frankly, hotels and other uh, aspects of the tourism industry. Claire Sebastian, live for us. Thank you so much. Coming up here on First Move, our final farewell to Davos. Julia dissects IBM's turnaround plan with the CEO, Ginny Roberty, where success is found in the clouds. Meantime, guess who's falling from the clouds? It's a lot more dangerous than it looks. If I slide, I'll slide into yeah, I know, and I'll go, and if I slide, it'll be down in the trees before you know it. You can catch me and then we'll just both make snowmen dance. Snow angels. I'll, We're off. I'll pay good money to see mom do a snow angel. <laughs> yeah, you haven't got enough money for that, my friend. And mom actually did it. Richard and Julia settle up as the World Economic Forum comes to a close.
Welcome back to First Move, live from Davos, Switzerland. Two of the big themes that I've been talking about all week and have been on panels discussing is one, tech for good, and the second, trust in technology. This is something that IBM CEO Ginny Rometty has been talking about now for many years. She's refocused IBM's business on technologies of the future like the hybrid cloud, quantum computing, blockchain, and artificial intelligence. And that new direction was reinforced, of course, with the acquisition of Red Hat for some $34 billion. We've discussed it previously on the show. That allows software and data to be moved easily between cloud platforms. Well, a few days ago, IBM also reported uh, their full-year earnings. The results beat uh, analysts' expectations. Ginny told me that her plan to refocus and reshape the business is driven by trust in the brand too, and that's well and truly paying off. Listen in. Actually, I think the results are a great vindication of the strategy. So we grew at all measures you could see. But the most important thing, I think, was for the world to see this wonderful acquisition we did second half last year of Red Hat because of our belief in the hybrid cloud in an open world. You could see IBM better together with Red Hat. So Red Hat hit record results, plus 24%, their yeah. first billion-dollar quarter. And then you saw the rest of IBM's lift as well. So it's that solution that goes together. And you saw our cloud accelerated through the year. 23% growth. And I think the part people are so excited about that, they missed the <laughs> point that margins expanded 230 okay. basis points. Because this has been about evolving into, yes, a company on hybrid cloud and AI for the enterprise, but one that's high value. And that's really pictures in that because we've done a lot of divestitures. So you see that in our margin. More efficient. It's more, more efficient, home. and it's things that are, are commoditizing. We've moved out. So as people have talked about our revenue, you and I have talked, I've divested almost $10 billion during my tenure of revenue because if you have to move out, if you're going to live 100 years, you've got to invest in the next thing, and you can't cling on to the past. So that's what's done it, and now the team, the team has done a superb job, and they're really positioned for the next chapter, and that's why we talked about position for revenue growth, EPS, free cash flow. It's really in a good, and it really, I think it's our clients voting with what, what we've really put together in the portfolio. And you also make a great point as well. You can look at the purchase of Red Hat in, in terms of the billions of dollars, but you have to look at it also in terms of what you've divested in order to streamline right. the business and prepare for this to be the real growth engine, I think, of the company going forward. That's right. That's right. Because because our view was, you know, the cloud journey is only 20% through and done. And so you got another 80% to go. But now's the hard work. And when hybrid cloud, that means, gee, when I'm doing mission critical work, like we were just selected to be the cloud, public cloud for Bank of America. Why? Mission critical means, oh, I better do 500 controls for the regulatory environment, almost continuous compliance. And so that's the world we've built for. And I think that's the world most clients are going to have to move toward. As, as we've talked about here at Davos, yeah. this is a decade of trust. And so you can trust us. I'm not going to compete with you. Your data is your data. And I will be sure that you are secure in this environment. And that's what this is about. Is that what you provide as well relative to competitors? I mean, the, the obvious point to make is that everyone sees in their different ways and your view on the hybrid cloud and the, the sort of mix of what companies will want and do want already going forward. Is that what differentiates you ultimately from some of the other big players that are looking at cloud and saying, we also see the potential of this going forward. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing that differentiates us is our trust and responsibility mm -hmm. and security is the biggest thing that differentiates us. But I do think as well what we've seen with clients is it will be a multi-cloud hybrid world. It's just like renovating a house. You, you don't do everything at once. You don't have infinite money. And there are certain rooms that are more used than other rooms. And there are certain rooms that you're more particular about. That's just real life of how a client's application portfolio looks. But we move them to the future at the right rate and to the right place. And so this to me is, we are the only one that gives them a horizontal platform that says you can use multiple clouds for certain things. It's horses for courses, but in a secure way. And you don't, in a world we've talked a lot about yeah. skills, you can build once, run anywhere. We are the only one that is horizontal, build once, run anywhere. The rest, they, they've got great strengths, but they're individually, as you might say, each an island on their own. So if you had to define where IBM is now, to your point, we're seeing the revenue growth. This is now a collection of pieces, a transition period that you've been working on. Where are we now as you look ahead 
12 months, strong found Yes, strong foundation built. We really mirror with our clients. Chapter one is over. Chapter two now is how to put all mission critical work yeah. into the cloud and how you put AI through everything you do in your company, but in a trusted way. That's the part we're on now. Let's talk about that because you and I were on a panel together talking about trust in technology, technology for good, the fact that trust is declining at this moment for, for many different reasons, fears about what technology represents. You came out and with your policy lab, a bold statement and said, look, we're going to take ownership of this and say, we're developing, we're encompassing this kind of technology in our systems today. This is how we think we need to see it regulated, precision regulation. Yes, yes. In fact, actually, we are not the last man in on this. We are the first man in on this topic. I was about to say, you're leading. You're absolutely we, uh, leading. Yes, you and I were talking about it. it was I think at least four years ago at Davos, we produced a paper that was, we said, we better write down our principles for trust and transparency in the AI and digital era. And we wrote that down, and I can remember bringing it here thinking it was you know, exciting everyone for everyone to, to talk, talk about, about it. it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. And I'm thinking, no, this is going to be the biggest issue of our time because if data is the most wonderful resource, it will be great, but it can also be abused. And I think this will separate companies. There'll be good tech and there'll be bad tech. And every company that uses tech is going to fall on one of these lines. And so we said, there are a set of principles. You must say what your principles are. You have to be willing to be audited to them. And your products, your people have to embody them. And so those principles were four years ago. So then we moved on. And actually, precision regulation, we started talking about last year. And the idea was, because I could see what was happening, mm. as there's a fear of some of these technologies, which is very natural, because these technologies change people's skills. I do think AI is going to change 100% of jobs. Not replace, but change what you do in some of your tasks. Reskilling required. So reskilling for really the whole global population over a 10 to 15 year period. And so, of course, people go, gee, do I have a better future? Number one job to be looked after here is that issue. So, therefore, when we say precision regulation, the first reaction can be, geez, this may not be good for my future. I, it may not be better. Therefore, AI is bad. Our point of precision regulation, like precision medicine, is if you go to a doctor, precision medicine is, gee, my leg is really hurting. Well, let me cut your arm off. No, Give that is something else to worry about. But that can happen. So very clear points about precision regulation, meaning, first and foremost, the idea would be you should regulate the use of technologies, not the technology themselves. Because every one of these technologies we're talking about has a wonderful thing it can do for society and a dark side, every one of them. So first on use. The second is on risk. So in other words, if I'm going to, on risk, use a chat bot to decide the route I travel or the restaurant I pick, mm. no really relative little risk in this versus I'm picking the kind of diagnosis or doctor I'm going to work with. That's a very different answer. And then the third thing is, and it's most important, mm. I feel very strongly since we ever introduced AI, we, we in our own firm said to every programmer, every builder, AI ethics. I have an AI ethics officer from the very beginning that said you have to be transparent and free of bias. People must know what trained it. Am I actually interfacing with AI? They must know, as an example, bias, because bias by itself is an act of bias. Bias is your values. So you have to be clear. So we build products that help companies, even doesn't matter who built the AI, it could be Google, anyone, that we could say, hey, there's a pattern here. You better check. Is that the bias you want? in the something. How are we going to achieve this? I mean, you're coming out and saying, look, we've been doing this from the beginning. You're leading as far as good use of technology, bad use, and mitigating the risks of each. But, you know, you and I were talking about a Stanford Institute, the AI Institute, and they were saying more than half of companies now adding AI into their systems in some way or form, but 13% only are actually looking at things like ethics, yes. bias, yes. discrimination. That, that, that's why this isn't solved as a, you can't regulate out of this problem. This is a public-private partnership, and every company, any private institution has got to take responsibility for this. And I think society is going to decide on this. And I think they're going to decide who they want to give licensed you know, trust and licensed to operate to. So just to wrap up, in five years' time, when you and I are having these discussions, one about IBM's business and two about business response to some of the big technology challenges, reasons to be optimistic oh look I'm, there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic i'm optimistic about honestly that i think we can make this digital era an inclusive era that many many more people can find an on-ramp 
and they don't all have to have a college degree. 63% of the OECD does not have a college degree. And there are many, many jobs and professions they can partake in this. And so I'm actually optimistic that with all of our work and many of myself, my colleagues have all doubled down around the world on this, this will be a more inclusive era. You cannot regulate your way out of this problem. She's a leader in this field, most certainly. The 50th anniversary of Davos, yes. wrapping up here, climate change, well and truly, I think, the key theme here. And yeah. no one encapsulates that better than Greta Thunberg. Of course, you got the chance to speak to her, to ask her, what's the purpose of coming to Davos? Listen to what she had to say. Of course, this is the right audience. Everyone is the right audience since, since I mean, both the finance, the business sector and, and the political sector, of course... Everyone needs to do something, so everyone is the right audience. We shouldn't be focusing about who's, which sector is most responsible, which sector has to do most, because all we need to push from every direction, and this, needs, this change needs to, to come from every direction. Her voice is certainly heard. Yeah. She's powerful. She's short. She's huh? a tiny little thing. I don't thing. think she I know packs she a big a punch, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in a non-patronizing way. <laughs> Did she speak to the business community? Because you asked her that. Yeah, she avoided it, but she said, look, we got the message out because there's 3,000 participants. I started uh, on Tuesday ahead of Donald Trump. I came in after his speech, said the message, and then they finished with the press conference and in March this afternoon, uh, all the way down the promenade here in Davos. So she feels like she got the message out. But we have to move away from that point of her being the voice of yeah. this action. Now they not have to sit at the bargaining table. Like the Extinction Rebellion, for example, uh, in the UK, sources tell me they sit with the oil and gas companies already and say, what's a realistic transition? Let's push coal out of the market. Let's bring in gas as a transition fuel and get the renewables onto the market as fast as possible. She got the world attention. You can see the protests here today. Now they just need to go to the, the, the OLC CEOs and say, okay, what can we do next? Yeah, what can we do next? Perhaps even just get China to turn off the taps or get Donald Trump to ship a load of LNG over there. But, John, <laughs> we'll come back to that because Richard Quest and I had a bit of a bet about snow angels. Two beautiful snow angels in the snow. Take a look at this. I've got Your to turn see next this. year. <laughs> a quick dip. Yeah, now, there's some nice, clean snow there. How'd you chance? Like Would you like a hand? Oh, here we are. Oh. There we are. Perfect. Oh, this is virgin snow. She's going to lose my boot. Show me the money, Richard. Go! I'm scared. Oh. This is very cold, Richard. Are you supposed to lean into your legs as well? With the sound of snow angels. How do we get up? <laughs> Thank you. Not bad. You made a larger dent. No, I'm a bit heavier. You have bigger wings. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> How does my hair look? <laughs> So we initially betted uh, 50 quid <laughs> and managed to get him up to 500 pounds. Right. And we had a debate about the now currency we, Now we well. know what she was like in grade school. She was a little naughty girl giggling. <laughs> still like She's that. been giggling for the last two hours. But that was fantastic, I it's have like to say. We and you made a lot of space. You're not uh, you know, as big as Richard, but you didn't give any space in the snow. It was good work on your part. Synchronized snow angels. Yes, exactly. I, like was, I was impressed by that, John. We're using the dollar here. You got to move away from that quid, right? No, no, no. It's stronger, my friend. Stronger. That's more money for charity. Good for you. Next year. Yes. You're with us. Same. Back to you. Julie, I still can't believe you wore regular jeans to do that. You saw Richard in his waterproof gear, and you were in regular jeans. Function over fashion, my friend. Function <laughs> over fashion. Lesson oh, learned next time. My friend, always. Yes. And a spare pair of trousers for an enormously <laughs> yes. wet bottom, I can tell. Yeah. All right. Yep. Live from Davos, Living Julia Chatterley. Uh, John Defterios there. You are watching First Move. We'll have more after this. Live from New York, I'm Zane Asher, and here is what you need to know. A massive city in China lockdown and Lunar New Year celebrations axed to try to contain the fast-spreading coronavirus. 
Staging their case, Democrats used President Trump's own words against him in the Senate impeachment trial and in the Swiss Alps, France and the United States spar over digital taxes and tariffs. It is Thursday and this is First Move. All right, welcome to First Move, coming to you live from New York and also the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Julia Chatley and Richard Quest will join us from Davos a little bit later on in the show. But first, let's take a quick check of global markets, where the spread of the Asian coronavirus is growing concern for investors. See a lot of red on your screen right now. Futures are pointing to a flat to lower Wall Street open when trading gets underway just about a half hour from now. European stocks are lower across the board. Big losses came from Asia. Chinese stocks tumbled 2.5% plus. Hong Kong closed down 1.5%. It was the worst day for Chinese stocks in more than eight months. Asian carriers continue to get hit hard by the virus uncertainty. Shares of Air China, China Eastern and Cathay Air all fell 2% or more. It's important to note that Asian markets are still going to be closed for the Lunar New Year. Chinese markets will be shut down for a full week beginning tomorrow. U.S. stocks finished Wednesday's session mixed after hitting fresh records earlier in the session. Gains evaporated late in the day as investors learned a little bit more about the seriousness of the outbreak and China's efforts to contain it. Uh, Asia's health emergency is our main driver for today. Uh, Chinese authorities are stepping up their efforts to control the spread of the coronavirus, which has killed 17 people and infected more than 500 so far. With just days to go until the Lunar New Year, city officials in Beijing have cancelled all large-scale celebrations. Wuhan, which is a city that is the size of London and at the epicenter of the outbreak, has now been placed on partial lockdown. And so have two other smaller neighboring cities as well. David Culver joins us live now from Beijing. So, David, this idea that people in Wuhan are being told essentially that they can't leave or they shouldn't leave and that city being placed on partial lockdown. I mean, I can only imagine the level of fear that there must be for residents who are still there inside the city. It's interesting to note, Zane, because we were there for roughly 36 hours altogether before we were able to get out. But there is a level of fear for some. For others, there's really just an acceptance that this will be what it is and we'll get through it and we'll be back in our homes and in a normal lifestyle uh, within a few weeks. That's kind of the, the, the two ranges that we see there. But what's also very interesting is to see how the government is expanding this now. So this goes beyond Wuhan, as you mentioned. This goes into two other cities. And yes, they're smaller cities, but you got to put it in scale here because small is bringing the total number from 11 million in Wuhan alone up to nearly 20 million people that we're talking about. And what are these restrictions looking like? Well, they're restricting public gatherings. So going to movie theaters, going to entertainment venues, going to tourism centers. And they're starting to inspect cars that are going into these cities. So what they'll do is they'll stop the vehicle and they'll check the temperature of those going in to the city and one by one making sure that they're not bringing with them a fever. So they're pretty strict in, in what they're implementing now. And you mentioned Beijing dampening the celebrations a bit for the Lunar New Year. This is a major holiday here. Hundreds of millions have been traveling over the past few weeks to celebrate this weekend. Beijing's efforts to uh, try to contain this and, and prevent any exposure and, and wider threat is now causing them to have to scale back a lot of the celebrations. They're telling folks, please abide by this. Don't go out there and, and risk it and don't cause the uh, exposure threat to rise any further. Um, our, our own experience in Wuhan was interesting in and of itself. I mean, while we were there for, for 36 hours, we got a good feel for some of the uncertainty and, and tapped into the unknowns. And, and there's a lot of questions that we were hearing from folks there as to really, is this going to be effective? Is this something that going forward is going to prove to have been a positive step? And that remains to be seen because some are questioning, should this have happened several days ago, maybe even a couple of weeks ago? Why is it just happening now? Nonetheless, this is the situation that China and its citizens is finding itself in and trying to figure out uh, where they go from here. It, it's, it's a moment of uncertainty and, and folks really just hoping for clarity going forward, Zane. All right, David Culver, appreciate that update. Thank you so much. 
In the U.S. Senate later today, Democrat prosecutors will continue making the case that Donald Trump abused his presidential power. They're trying to convince at least four, at least four Republicans that witnesses should be called and new documents presented in evidence. Lauren Fox joins us live now. So, uh, Lauren, how likely or unlikely is it at this point that that we'll have uh, witnesses in this case? Well, it's really too early to tell, Zane. What we can expect to see is today Democrats will be back making their case. The House managers will focus today on their first article of impeachment, abuse of power. Then likely tomorrow they'd focus on something like obstruction of Congress, that second article of impeachment. Then you still have 24 hours of presentation that are available for the president's defense team. That would likely begin Saturday. Then they could have Monday and Tuesday as well to handle their defense of the president. Then we likely won't get to a vote on witnesses until next Wednesday at the earliest. Now, that can all change because if people yield time back or they aren't interested in making a case for the full 24 hours, that timeline will shift. But I will tell you that right now, the number of senators who are getting out of their seats a little more frequently, stretching their legs, walking to the back of the chamber, having quiet conversations, that's really starting to increase because there's a little bit of a sense that people have heard this story before. Remember, Democrats are really going over the facts of the case here, but there's not a whole lot of new information that's coming out. I'll tell you a funny moment, which is that when they play these video clips, because sometimes they play clips of the president or Mick Mulvaney interviews of the past, senators really, you see them suddenly perking up, paying attention. There's just sort of a shift in the energy in the chamber because this is pretty monotonous for a lot of senators, which is why you're starting to see the patients wear a little thin, Zane. And uh, just in terms of what's happening today, you touched on this fact uh, just a little while ago that Democrats are really going to be continuing to make the, the, the argument that they believe that the president should be removed from office. Just walk us through what uh, the crux of their argument will continue to be. Well, yesterday they really broke this up into a few specific chunks. They talked a lot about the specific language that the president used in that phone call between him and President Zelensky of Ukraine. They also talked about the withholding of that U.S. military aid in a lot of detail. And part of the reason they did that was because they want to fill in the gaps. There's been a lot of information and documents that have come out since the House concluded their investigation from a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. So they wanted to highlight that new information. You can expect that they're going to break it down into chunks once again today. The House managers really taking turns, making that case, shifting voices and narratives as a way to try to keep attention from the U.S. senators. But again, it's getting harder and harder because a lot of members feel like they've heard this before. Lauren Fox, live for us. Thank you so much. Now to Davos, Switzerland. The U.S. and France have agreed today on how to press ahead with rules for digital taxes. France says the two sides will focus on securing a global deal this year. Julia Chatterley joins us live now. So, Julia, you know, just the fact that uh, the United States has actually agreed to suspend tariffs on French goods, but we all know that this is clearly not the end of the argument. Richard Quest has been speaking to Bruno Le Maire about this. What did he have to say? Oh, and the perfect lead-in. Richard Quest is here with me, Zane. So uh, let's talk about that because it's just one of the things, of course, that's being discussed here in mm -hmm. Davos, the coronavirus, of course. Black swans is always a huge debate. That also being uh, front and centre here among the debate. But let's talk about uh, the truce between the United States and uh, France here over digital tax. This is the United States saying or understanding that any company that voluntarily pays a voluntary tax on anything is probably likely not to hang around very long. They've kicked it into the long grass. Oh. Um, for whatever reason, neither side wanted to go into full battle. But I don't think one should be fooled that this has been put off to one side. Uh, Bruno Le Maire, the French finance minister, I suspect, you know, he defended why he wanted this tax. But he did tell me that it hadn't gone away. <laughs> I fully understand the concern of the U.S. Uh, administration, but uh, they should also take into account that it's difficult for us to have those biggest companies in the world having all the European uh, customers without paying the due taxes in Europe. So that's also a fair deal to say, well, you want to have access to the single market in Europe, that's fair. You want to have access to the 500 million of European customers, that's fair but you have to pay your taxes. 
But do you think you can reach a deal with the U- where, Well, do you think there is ground that the U.S. will eventually agree to? I think so, because, you know, that's a global deal. In the deal, you have digital taxation, but you also have minimum taxation. And we share exactly the same point of view with uh, the uh, American administration. We want all the companies to pay their due taxes. We don't want to have tax evasion, and we want to have minimum taxation. The Americans, I think, realising here that no one's going to ultimately pay a voluntary tax, and that's what the French were saying all along, but it's got to be far bigger than these two countries. It's got to be far broader. We can debate this further, and I'm sure it's going to come up with a broader trade battle, but I do want to talk about the coronavirus, because we're all talking about this, that the Chinese suspending the big New Year celebrations as a result. Very different feel, perhaps if we believe the response to what we saw in SARS in 2003? Well, they learned a lot from SARS and from Ebola, and they are effectively the same. The size of this is pretty huge. Um, but the airline association, IATA, has yes. already put out guidance, and the airlines are going to coordinate with national health authorities in a view, in a view to, to stopping it. But the nature of this, first of all, uh, the city involved is 11 million people. So they came to it late. There'll be many more people who may have travelled already. I would expect you will see a, a, a rise, a continuing rise, until authorities have got a grip on it, and then it'll fall off quite shopping and that's what you're seeing with the hand again the travel industry knows how to deal with it it's not pleasant it's not nice but they know what to do about it do we trust the information we're getting because the problem back in 2003 was the suggestion was they were too late we didn't have all the information yes we can say that the chinese are perhaps acting more precipitously this time around is everyone else not taking the risk actually that they don't have enough information so they step up Absolutely. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, if you're Thailand, Singapore, Australia, the UK, the US, Hong Kong, of course, thank you. If you're those countries, you are not going to rely on the Chinese statistics in case they are wrong or misguided or whatever. You are going to put in place. And that means identifying those travellers as they come through. And for those who are already there, having in place a travel health advisory system that you get in quarantine and deal with. They do know how to do this. This is not rocket science for the health authorities. It's hard work, but they know how to do it. Uncertainties at this point in time, of course, as well. We're all over it. Richard Quest, thank you for that. Zane, back to you. Right, Julia Chatterley, Richard Quest, thank you. So these are the stories making headlines around the world. The International Court of Justice has ordered Myanmar to do all it can to prevent the genocide of Rohingya Muslims. The UN's top court ruled that it does have jurisdiction to hear the genocide case against Myanmar. Hundreds of thousands of Rohingya have fled from Myanmar to Bangladesh to escape violence at the hands of Myanmar's military. The country's de facto leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, has called genocide allegations incomplete and misleading. Dozens of world leaders are in Jerusalem to mark 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. The U.S. Vice President Mike Pence, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, joined Russia's Vladimir Putin and Britain's Prince Charles. Oren Liebman is at the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial uh, in Jerusalem. Oren, just certainly a solemn reminder of what happened 75 years ago. To set the scene for us where you are. Absolutely. The ceremony now well underway now as we hear from the speakers here. Frankly, some of the biggest names of world leaders from around the globe have come here to commemorate uh, Auschwitz and what happened there in the Holocaust on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz concentration camp in Nazi-occupied Poland. We've heard from Russian President Vladimir Putin, Vice President Mike Pence, French President Emmanuel Macron and others. And all of them here spoke in one voice against anti-Semitism, agreeing that this is a scourge that has once again risen and needs to be dealt with. Putin even saying that we need to be vigilant to maintain and watch for the first seeds of anti-Semitism, of racism, of xenophobia, so it can be dealt with at at its core. Others pointing out that it always starts with anti-Semitism. It always starts with hatred of the Jews, but that's never where it ends. 
Of course, one of the speakers we heard from today was Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and he began by talking about the evils of Auschwitz and then segued to talking about what Jerusalem means to the Jewish people, what Jerusalem means to Israel, and what has become of the Jewish people after the creation of the state. He then went off and made a comparison he's made before. He compared Auschwitz and Nazi ideology to Tehran and the threats coming towards Israel from Iran, saying this is where the world needs to stand up and deal with the world's leading purveyor of anti-Semitism. Here, he essentially has a captive audience of most of the representatives of the states that have signed on to the uh, Iran nuclear agreement, and he essentially told them they should stand by President Donald Trump and the American administration's maximum pressure campaign. So definitely Netanyahu getting a little political in his speech here. Then we heard from Vice President Mike Pence, who gave a very powerful speech saying memory is the collective obligation of all generations. What happened in the Holocaust, what happened in Auschwitz must be remembered. He too gave a shorter, essentially part of his statement about talking about Iran and what he called the world's leading purveyor of anti-Semitism. He then concluded his speech with a Jewish prayer. He said, That means, may he who makes peace in the heavens Grant peace to Israel and to all of us. Amen. It is the conclusion of the Jewish prayer of mourning. It is also a Jewish prayer of hope. So a powerful speech coming from Pence there. He was then followed up by French President Macron and Prince Charles, who completed the biggest speeches of this uh, event. Arguably the biggest event in terms of world leaders, dignitaries, and heads of state that this country has ever hosted. Aaron Liebman, my for us. Thank you so much. After the break here on First Move... U.S. Treasury Secretary mocks uh, climate activist Greta Thunberg in Davos and the head of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange tells our Julia Chatley that he's hoping China handles the current virus outbreak better than the SARS crisis back in 2003. That's next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode. 